this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Hey guys, next up, you're going to hear from Tommy Barretts at Barretts on all the big social platforms. Tommy started a company called Texas Aquatic Enterprise was the name or T-A-E. They were in the business of maintaining swimming pools, which on the surface is a relatively commoditized business. But have a listen to the way Tommy differentiated the business through his safety policy, which is a key way that he built a sellable company. He also went about hiring salespeople that sold the key value proposition or the point of differentiation. He got a CFO in place to handle the numbers. He did a whole myriad of things to get the business ready to sell. He was essentially taking himself out of the equation, which is, as you know, the first ingredient to building a sellable company. He got five offers for his company that ranged in value. One was was very high, one was very low, and he ended up going with one slightly less than the highest. And he'll tell you why he did that. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Tommy Barretts. Tommy Barretts, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. You were in the swimming pool business. Tell me about that. What kind of company did you guys have? So we had a commercial uh, swimming pool company. Uh, and basically, so it's based in Houston, Texas. And every neighborhood in Houston has a swimming pool because it's so hot in Houston. And uh, they hire companies like us to, they contract us out to take care of their swimming pool, their lifeguard needs, their cleaning, their chemicals. We did pool construction, renovations. So basically anything that dealt with the swimming pool, we would do uh, on the commercial end, like even like rice was a customer of ours. So we dealt with universities, municipalities, HOAs, all those types of swimming pools are the ones that we dealt with. Okay, so you have residential pools on one side. You were not dealing with those guys. It was the commercial, local community schools, universities, hospital or hospitals, high schools, et cetera, communities, municipalities. Correct. And like we we did we did do some residential stuff, but it was all like friends of friends. Like, hey, do you mind taking care of my stuff? But for the most part, ninety nine point nine percent of our business was all commercial. And what was your business model? How'd you make money? So, uh, like I said, the, the like HOAs would contract us out for an entire year. I don't know what an HOA is. What? Homeowners Association. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So Homeowners Association would contract us out and we would sign a contract for a year. And so obviously during 
the summer months, we were extremely busy because you got everybody wanting to use the pool. You got a lot of pool repairs. You're doing a lot of construction work. And then you've got the lifeguarding aspect, uh, taking care of the pool. So they would contract us out for, uh, on an annual basis. And sometimes like the bigger contracts would sign us for three years or a five year deal to where, uh, we could keep, we would have the longevity of the contract for a longer duration, which was awesome for us. Um, and there was, you know, there was an out in the contract that way, if they weren't satisfying our needs or we weren't satisfying their needs that, you know, there could be a cancellation clause in there. Got it. Okay. So you've got these contracts, these service contracts that you're working with. How did it, how did you sell your service? Did, did, did you have a sales force? Did you personally do some of the selling? What was your model? Yeah. So when we first started, I did all the sales. Well, my business partner and I did like everything, like every entrepreneur does on a startup. You do everything under the sun. You wear a bunch of different hats. Uh, But over time, we started getting a sales team involved. And it was probably one of the most imperative, game-changing decisions we ever made. Because... Hmm. If you're the one doing the sales and you have an issue in the operations, so then you go focus on to rectify whatever issues you have, then all of a sudden you have no more sales coming in. So then you're trying to play this balance between operation and sales. Um, and it's just never ending and you're pulling your hair out by the end of the day. Yeah. What's the secret of hiring good salespeople? Uh, so what I would recommend is always hire somebody who has experience. Uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of personality tests that you can give to people. Uh, I think we gave the Winslow profile and it'll actually tell you before you even hire the person, whether they're actually going to be good at sales or not. And I think what a lot of people do, the mistake that people make whenever they are going to hire salespeople is they want to train somebody and put them in that position because it's cheaper to do that. But from my experience, I always like to get somebody who's smarter than me and hire them and put them that them in that position. That way I don't have to babysit them and overlook everything that they're doing. And they're telling me what they're doing, what they need for me to help them perform their, their position. So experience. Was it a competitive bidding situation? Like would an HOA go, did you have direct competitors and say, we could either go with Tommy's company or you know, three other providers? Yes, absolutely. So it was, a, it's, it's a small community, but it's, it is competitive. So whenever you bid on something, obviously you're going to have three to five other people you're bidding with. And, and the, the struggle is, is everybody does just about the same thing that you're doing. So, you know, you have to be competitive with what you're offering and your pricing has to be within the market rate uh, to be able to actually win over a bid. How did you guys differentiate yourselves? So one of the biggest differentiating factors was our safety policy because drowning kills a lot of kids in the United States every year. It's a huge, huge statistic. Um, you know, back in the seventies, drive a car without a seatbelt on and a beer in your hand and nobody said anything to you, you know, it was all of a sudden that people started looking at statistics and saying, wait, all these people got in car accidents and these are the ones that died. Um, and they were, they weren't wearing a seatbelt. So we need to make this mandatory because as human beings, we're not, always that smart. And so they mandated that we had to wear seatbelts and you can no longer drink and drive. Well, so we started looking at the statistics and we said, you know what, this is, you know, what's, what are the cause of all these drownings? Well, you've got kids that are going to swimming pools that don't have any type of safety policy besides their parents and a lifeguard sitting in a stance. What we did is we created a child safety policy that if 
anybody who came into the facility under 42 inches of height, they had to wear a life jacket and they got a red wristband that indicated to the lifeguards, this kid can't swim. And the parents also got a red wristband. If the parent opted out of wanting to put the kid in the life jacket, the parent had to stay within arm's reach of the kid at all times. Um, and they had to get in the water with them and they, they both had a red wristband. And if there was an incident where the kid struggled at any point and the parent wasn't there, then they had, there it was mandatory. That they got put in a life jacket. And then we also had, if they didn't want the kid in a life jacket, we had them fill out a waiver saying that, Hey, we told you the risk of your kid not being in a life jacket. And we want you to assume that risk by, by knowing that we explained what, what could possibly happen if they didn't wear a life jacket. How, how did that safety policy help you in selling your service? Oh, it was awesome. Like we would tell people about it. Um, and that was just, that was on the lifeguarding side. There's some other things we did on other sides, but like people loved it. They, you know, at first there would be a little bit of a pushback, like, well, I don't know how the communities are going to react because as a parent, you don't want somebody else telling you how to parent your kid, you know, well, my kid's going to be fine. And so there's that little bit of a struggle, but it's, we're the, we're the experts. We're the ones that see the statistics and we're the ones that are trying to make your facility safer. So when you sit in a meeting and you show them that you're investing safety into their facility, then people start to trust you a little bit more. Um, and obviously when we first kicked that off, there was, there was pushback. People would not want to have their kids in a life jacket, but overall, and I can say this, uh, while I owned the company, I never had a drowning and it worked out excellently. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's got to be the worst, uh, absolute kind of worst nightmare. And Tommy, I, I want to get into the sale, but before we do, I'd be curious, you know, was there part of you that, you know, I guess part of the challenge with a lot of business owners is that there's always this sort of concern in the back of our minds that something is going to go wrong. Some customer is going to be unhappy. Something we're going to deliver is not going to work. Something, you know, and, it, and, and we can go to bed at night and you're totally fine. But there's a little part of our brain, whether it's 5% or 3%, that's still churning through that concern or worry that something we It sounds like in your case, someone drowning was the catastrophic thing that, that you worried about. How, how much did you worry about it? Uh, I'll ask that first and then maybe I'll ask the follow-up. Yeah. So that was always in the back of uh, the, in the back of my mind. And there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. John who's in the industry and he's like the guru. And he says, owning a business like we owned, uh, you're probably going to have a drowning every seven years. That statistically is what it shows. And so we own that company over 12 and that was always in the back of my mind. And, and, and so you, there's kind of like a, a push and pull you want to get out and sell the business because you don't want that to happen. But then on the other part of you doesn't want to sell it because you want to make sure you're there to implement the safety policies to ensure that, you know, you be, it becomes an industry standard. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was always in the back of my mind for sure that, and that's why we always wanted to take care of the lifeguards and make sure that they were well-trained, well taken care of, because if you have an employee that you take good care of, they're going to take good care of you. And was, was that wanting to be alleviated of that stress of one day having to deal with a drowning? Was that in any way uh, part of your decision to sell the company? That definitely was a part. That was a part of it. When we initially started the company, we always wanted to sell it. 
Uh, that was kind of our initiative. Like, Hey, let's start a company. Let's build it. Let's sell it. Let's see if we can do it. But then as time went on, that was definitely a, a factor of, all right, we've had the company for 12 years so far. We haven't had any real incidents. And so maybe it's time to kind of bow out before something catastrophic were to happen. And if something had had happened, I'm assuming you had insurance that would have covered you for that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We had insurance. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. But yeah. it was more the the psychological burden of that as opposed to the financial. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it's because you know, I'm a, I'm a new parent right now, so like I can't even imagine like having to go through something so detrimental and so devastating, and so when we owned the company that was always in the, in the back of our minds. It's like, man, you, you don't want, not on my watch. I don't want that to happen on my watch. And, and I don't know how you move on from that and, and continue to own a company if something like that were to happen, because at some level you would have to feel like it was your fault. You know, you, sure. you're, you're the owner of the company and that happened when you're the owner of the company. So like, I would take responsibility for that. Like, where did I go wrong with training my employees or making sure they had what they needed to make sure that this didn't happen? Yeah, I think it's it's so underestimated and, and, and not talked about a lot is that this, there's this sort of like psychological tax that business owners pay in being a business owner that at the end of the day, you are where the buck stops, right? And if a product breaks, somebody gets hurt and an employee gets injured in whatever capacity, it's on you. And I think after years, as it did with you, it does weigh on you. Anyways, let's get on a happier topic. We're <laughs> <laughs> talking about these heavy, heavy things. So, so chatting with Sean, our producer, she tells me that there was a period where, where you decided to, to sell and you had a valuation come back and it wasn't what you hoped for. Maybe talk us through that a little bit. Okay. So, so like I said, originally we wanted to sell the company. And so we were building it, building it, building it. And we were the, the owners were involved on a day-to-day uh, operational aspect of the company. So I actually went to our CPA and I got a book value of the company and I'm, you know, we've been working this thing. I think we're maybe eight years in at the time, seven years, eight years in, and I go get a book value of the business. And I'm super excited because I'm thinking, man, it's going to come back. It's going to be millions and we're going to sell. And she gave, she gives me a book value of less than a hundred grand. Yeah. And I was, so, so do you want to define book value for folks who may not uh, understand that terminology? So she gave the book value based on what our books currently are, the position of our books currently, um, you know, how much cash, how much, how many assets we had, um, and a lot of times you'll get a book value based on like, if you want to buy a partner out, people will get a book value to go, Hey, look, this is what we're currently worth right here at this time. And they don't yeah. take anything to account like contracts. Uh, you know, if we have five years worth of contracts that worth $7 million, they don't put that into account. It's just basically what your books are showing current date and that's it. Yeah. Generally book value is you know, the, 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 the value of your hard assets, right? So like what, yeah. you know, the trucks, the, uh, you know, the, the life jackets, all the stuff that you own, yeah. what is that worth on auction uh, or at market rate? And uh, it's usually a fraction of what the company is actually worth if you want to sell it, presumably if you've got ongoing profit and contract and so forth. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like you're right. It's like uh, at auction at a deep, deep, deep discount. Well, when that happened, I was I was like super distraught. I was depressed. I was like, man, I was like, here I have been busting my butt all these years, and just to find out because I didn't understand what book value was, so mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't get the concept at the time. So I was like, okay, uh, and. So sell this company, uh, I'm good. What I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to build it to where I don't have to be here. So the book value being as low as it was, was actually a blessing in disguise because then now we're starting to position it to where, all right, we need to start getting the right people in play. So we don't have to be here on a daily basis and we can turn this company into a passive income asset. And so that's what we started doing. Your, your accountant told you, look, Tommy, I mean, as, as long as you're deeply you know, ingrained in the operations, it's certainly not worth anything without you. So we can sell the life jackets and the trucks, but there's nothing there. What you've got to do is get it to run without you personally, and then we'll be able to sell for more. Um, right. Essentially what she said. Okay. So what was that process like? Like what was the, what was the process of, of decommunizing your company? <laughs> what, what did that look like? What did you start with? So we, st we just started looking at, at each department and understanding what we needed to get, uh, who we, who we needed to get involved in each department to make sure that it could run on its own. You know, you have your operations, you've got your sales, you've got your accounting. And so one of the first things we did is be, this is so funny. We, we, we used to, cut checks and we would go look in our bank account. All right. So we've got this much money in the bank account. All right. We can, we can cut the check for this. We can cut the check for that. You know, we weren't actually using our books. You like you would go in our books and you could, you could see some stuff, but it wasn't very accurate. So we initially were like, all right, we need to get this under control to be able to understand to where we can read it off. So we, we hired a CFO to go through our books and she completely revamped everything we were doing she laughed like as she was going through like, I can't believe you guys like were running this this way with all your employees. And we're like, we didn't know any day, you know, we're, we're new at this, you know, we're new entrepreneurs. And uh, so we started with the accounting because the accounting is such a cornerstone of your business. And I think that that's something that so many entrepreneurs neglect. It's kind of like, I just do accounting because of tax reasons. And that's the only reason they do it. And they're not looking at the future thinking, you know what, at some point I might want to be able to sell this and I'm going to have to submit three to five years of accounting data to whoever wants to buy this place. And then I'm going to have to answer questions based on the data that I give them. And so we started with accounting. To, to be clear, Tommy, did you hire a fractional CFO or a full-time 40 hour a week CFO? Full-time full-time 40 hour a week CFO. Wow. Okay. Yes. And it was, so as it transitioned, it, you know, it turned into like, I'm an owner of the company and I'm asking her, you know, a few years later, the stuff that I can buy and what I can do. And she's telling me, Tommy, you, you can't buy that equipment right now. It's too expensive. We're on a cyclical downturn. You need to wait till, you know, March of next year to be able to buy, you can buy it. Then we'll have, you know, this much money to be able. So she was giving me the information to be able to run the business, which was completely different than the way it was running before, you know, looking into the bank and going, Oh yeah, I think we can buy it. Right. So you professionalize your, your forecasting, your, your, your bookkeeping and your financials. What else did you do to, to, to pull yourself out of the operations? So I want to say the biggest thing. So that was huge. The accounting, because then you could, you could actually see what the business was doing. You can make decisions based off of that. So the other thing that we did is we started hiring a sales team 
that was absolutely enormous because now the company was generating income on its own. And I think a lot of business owners struggle with hiring a sales team because they feel like, well, nobody can sell like I can, nobody can do it like I can. And the truth of the matter is, is there's, if you have competitors, there's people out there that can do it just as good as you can. And to be honest, if you hire a salesperson, in my opinion, if they can do 80 to 85% of what you can do, you've got a winner. You've got someone that's going to produce income for you and you don't have to worry about it. So that was a, that was a huge, huge uh, game changer is hiring salespeople, man. That I like whenever, whenever I talk to entrepreneurs and they, and they say that they're the ones that do all the sales, I'm like, man, you need to really reconsider that. You really need to look into getting some, someone who's experienced in there who can sell for you. Great stuff. Great stuff. So anything else that you did that people listening might, cause I think a lot of people listening to me will be like right in the same spot, right there. They know their company is a little too dependent on them personally. Maybe they've done some, some work on the books. Maybe they've pulled themselves out of the, the selling. Is there anything else that you did that really got you out of the day-to-day kind of doing yeah. So hiring people who were in charge of, you know, the different departments of, of operations to where, you know, they would go run operations, they would go deal with all the issues. And it, it transitioned me from working in the business to working on the business to where I've got this macro view of everything that's going on. And now I feel like I can actually maneuver and give a vision of where we're headed and what we need to do to get to where I know we can be versus, you know, being stuck inside the business, working day in and day out in the operation and the sales to where you have no time to look at anything else. And you're just kind of floating along and you're, you don't have a, a, a one year or a two year or a five year plan of where you want to be. You're just trying to make it to, to the next week uh, and trying to keep your head above water. Got it. So at what point did you decide that you were ready to sell this company? Uh, again, once you made some of these changes, so a event or like some draw, you know, straw that broke the camel's back. So here's what, here's what happened. It started out, uh, where like the hours that I actually worked on the business started to diminish. And so I was kind of, I wanted to get out of the, out of the industry. And once I realized I'm like, wow, I'm really not, I'm still showing up to the office, but I'm really not working on the business that much. I'm, I'm spending about 10 hours, uh, you know, some, some months, maybe 10 hours a week, but most months it was like 10 hours a month. And I was like, you know, I've removed myself. I, at one point I went away for like six weeks. I went to New York for six weeks. And when I came back, the business had grown and I was like, wow, this thing is actually moving forward and I don't have to be here. And so I just, I told my business partner, I said, Hey, look, I'm going to get the company valued. I want to, I just want to see what it's worth. And I said, you know, if it's actually worth selling, then I think we're going to move forward with it. If it's not, if we still get the same ridiculous low value, then we'll just keep pushing forward and we'll keep growing the business and we'll make it to where it's just a completely passive income entity. And so uh, what's your relationship with your partner? Are you the majority shoulder and can, can tell him or her what you're doing or wasn't it something you had to discuss with your partner? So, so it started out to where we were 50, 50 partners. And then I think after four, three or four years, we ended up hiring a vice president and we gave him 10% of the company. So I then owned 45%. Uh, my other business partner owned 45% and 
uh, the vice president on 10%. And he was like the one that was like really like running the place. Like he was in there making, making moves on a daily basis. And we even got him to where he really didn't have to work there that often, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was the one running the business. I was on the business side. Um, he was doing some other stuff. So pretty much like the decisions he wanted out anyway, for, for, he had wanted out for a while. The, the guy, the guy, his name was Chris owned 45%. He had been wanting out for like four or five years. And so when I called him, he was like, I have been waiting for you to make this phone call for like five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So did you go get it valued? What did it, what did it come back at? Yeah. So we, we went and got it valued and, uh, we, we did it through, um, a separate valuation company and we got the value back. It came back over seven figures, low seven figures. And I, I remember calling him. I was like, man, we're selling this thing. I was like, let's, this time is now let's, let's do it. And so he, he was definitely on board and, uh, the other owner was on board and, uh, I started looking for brokers. I was like, I, you know, what, how are you valuing it in your own mind? Did you have a formula you were using to give a sense of what it would be worth? Um, did you have any, any sense of sort of uh, the way companies like yours were being valued? I did know a little bit. Like I knew, I knew that we had added up all of our contract values and, you know, we were a multimillion dollar company. And when, when you say added the contract value, you, you were talking about like, like a three year contract at, whatever a hundred thousand dollars a year would be valued at three hundred thousand dollars. Is that what you mean by valuing right. contract? Right. Okay. Right. And we would take, you know, like whatever the expenses were, we would generally take that stuff out because they're not going to pay you for that. They're not going to pay you for the expenses. They're going to pay you for the profit. But, and then we looked at, I looked at all of our assets. And so, you know, I kind of, I kind of understood how it would go and it actually came back more than I thought it was going to come back at. And so, um, it was, it was pretty exciting, you know, getting was the, the valuation, getting, um, was the valuation company using a multiple of your profit or your income or revenue? What, how did they approach the value? So they, they valued it based on discretionary earnings, discretionary earnings for people that don't know is based on what your, what your, what the company's profit is. And then any of the owners, you know, salaries, uh, anything that the owner, you know, would pay for or buy, like if, you know, we would, go on a trip every year that was twenty thousand uh, dollars that would get added back into the bottom line of what the what the value of the company is worth and i'm i'm saying that discretionary earnings where they add the owner's salaries back and whatever they spend the problem with it is is if you're in the business and you're you're doing a job they don't add your salary back because they know that they're going to have to, once somebody buys it, they're going to have to put somebody in your position and your salary is a wash. So that's why it's so important to get yourself out of the day-to-day operations to where you don't have to be there because then all the money you make actually goes back to whoever the new owner is going to, going to buy the company. So um, that that's, it's imperative to get yourself out of the business. So what multiple of your discretionary earnings did you think it was worth ballpark? So I thought maybe, I thought maybe, maybe two, I thought maybe two, but it came back at 3.4. So I was, I was happy with that. That's fantastic. So you, you had this valuation done, you had it done and and you were happy with the number. Then what was the next step for you guys? So then the next step I started interviewing brokers and I started talking to people, read your book. Um, (laughs) Good. 
<laughs> and uh, it didn't totally I, screw you up then, did it? <laughs> I was I read your book and I was like, man, I don't think I'm gonna do this now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. But, so then we started we started looking for brokers, and you know, I don't even know how many brokers I you know I I called, left messages, and I think I had like five or seven call me back, and I did like a little interview process with them. First of all, I wanted to know if they had ever sold a company like ours. And I went through broker after broker after broker. Some brokers would talk to me for like five minutes. Other brokers would talk to me, you know, maybe for 10 minutes. But then I had one broker talk to me for 30 or 45 minutes, went through the entire process with me, uh, told me everything that she was going to do. And I felt the only caveat was that she had never sold a business like ours. And so there was another broker that I talked to that had. And so I was kind of going back and forth, which one you know, do I want to work with? And so I called the other one back to, and he didn't give me the time of day. So I went with the one that gave me, uh, all the, all the valuable information on a, over the phone. And so I didn't know this at the, whenever I got the, the initial value, I didn't know this. When you hire a broker, generally they'll also value your company. Uh, they won't, they won't, they won't utilize your value, your, your valuation that you got because they want to, they want to do their own. Um, I guess in some cases they will, but in this specific case, they wouldn't, which was at first I was kind of like, well, kind of worried again. I'm like, well, what if she comes back with a value and it's way lower, you know? So, uh, but she did the value and I think her value was within like $80,000. It was like super close of, of what the original one was. And then I told her, Hey, by the way, I got another value and here's how close they are. And she was like, well, can I see it? I was like, yeah, here you can see it. And so I was really happy that it came within such a close number of what the original was. And so then the process was from there is you, you sign the agreement, the listing agreement. And I always have, anytime I have to sign something, I, I send it over to my attorney. I'm like, Hey, can you look over this? Because Something that I didn't know that I know now is that when a company makes a, an agreement, oftentimes they call it the standard listing agreement or the standard agreement. So in your mind, you're like, oh, it's the standard agreement. But then when you go through it, there's nothing standard about it. It's their standard agreement. It's not the standard. And so my attorney calls me. He's like, man, there is nothing standard about this agreement. And so we go through it line by line. He's like, Hey, you need to change this, 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 this. like, I mean, it was, there was quite a few notes. And so, and I told her, I said, Hey, I'm going to send this to my attorney and have him look at it. And she was like, yeah, that's, that's great. And so I sent it over to, to her with the revisions that he was suggesting. And we jumped on a phone call and she was like, here are the things that, uh, you know, I will change this. No problem. I'll take this out. This is a non-negotiable, you know, cause my attorney wants to try to get the, the, the best contract possible for me. And she's like, this is non-negotiable. Um, so there was things like, you know, if we sold the business within three years of hiring her to someone who was within her network and she wasn't representing, we still owed her a commission, which makes sense. You know, if you introduce somebody to, to the buyer and then things kind of fall out for a little bit and then you're not representing them anymore, but the same buyer comes back. So I didn't have an issue with that. I'm like, yeah, I get it. You, you, probably deserve the commission since you introduced me to the person who's going to buy it. So there was certain things within the document that we had changed. And that's why I always tell people, man, when some standard agreement or an agreement of any kind, send it to an attorney to have them review it and give you some insight of what's actually in that document. Can you give us an example of a term that you asked her to change that she, what she did go ahead and change? 
trying to remember. So something that she did change. Um, so because all the owners own some sort of like assets outside of, outside of TAE, uh, there was some terminology. A lot of camp yeah. Right. And so there was some terminology in there that like was kind of convoluted, very ambiguous about if we sold some sort of assets that uh, we would owe a commission, which was especially scary for one of the owners owned a lot of real estate. And he was like, he honed in on that. And he was like, man, if, if we sign this and I sell a house, she can't tell me I owe her her 10%. So it was something that she conceded on. And she, I forget exactly. We changed the, the wording to where it would just be applicable just to the business. And it wasn't to where, you know, if we sold other assets that were outside that business venture that she would actually get a commission. So that was one thing that she changed. And in the beginning, she didn't want to change that. But then after we explained it, she was like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. Got it. Okay. So you do this deal with the broker and then what happens? Do you get offers? Where, where do you go from there? So, so you, you do the initial listing agreement and people always ask, you know, like I got so much advice about a broker. Like there were so many people like, don't use a broker. Don't use it. You're paying them for nothing. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have the, the network that they do to introduce me to people. So when people ask me, would you recommend using a broker or not? I'm like, well, how fast do you want to sell your company? If you don't care if you sit on it for the next five years, you can try to sell it by yourself all you want. But if you want to sell it quickly and it's actual, an actual sellable business, then you're going to want to get a broker involved. And so the process went, we, we did the listing agreement. Uh, we had to send her a, a bunch of documents, a bunch of financials and uh, projections and everything. So that was, it was over the course of a few months. And then what happened is, is she, before she actually listed the, the company, she had like a, a select list of potential buyers. And so before she listed it, she sent an email out, Hey, look, I have this company. It's a, uh, a, a viable company. It runs on its own. It's got absentee owners. And she got, uh, she, she got an approved for, uh, I forget it was, if someone wanted to buy it for a loan, but I forget who it was through. Probably called SBA lending. Is that what, uh, maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe yeah. it was SBA lending. So she got our it. It was our listeners, Tommy, uh, SBA lender in specific United States where basically the bank will guarantee a, uh, the government will guarantee a bank loan for a buyer to buy uh, a business that makes it much more marketable as a, as a small business because the, the buyer can get financing to, uh, to, to purchase them. Right. And you're, you are correct. It was SBA lending. That, that is correct. Um, and so she sent out this, one of the other caveats I had to, when I spoke to her, and I think this is an, an important thing to talk about is I told her, I don't want to do an earnout. I was like, I don't want to do an earnout. I don't, I, I want somebody with a, the cash up front. I don't, I don't want to stick around and work in the business and have to meet these stats that they're expecting to be able to get my money. I, I, I've worked the business. I don't want to do that. And so, um, and basically an earnout is, you know, where you stay within the business and you have to meet whatever is in their contract, you know, a revenue number for them to pay you a percentage of, of whatever, you, wherever you say the revenue is going to be over the next two to three years. And I didn't want to do that because what ends up happening is in an earnout is if you don't meet those, then you end up, you, you sell the business for a fraction of what it's actually worth. And what so I was very response to that. When, when you said, look, I don't want to, I don't want to know that. What did your broker say in response? 
understandable. She's like, I don't think you have to. She's like, you have an actual sellable business. So I don't think an earn out would even be on the table. And so back to the email. So she sent out an email on a Friday night and within five to seven days, we had five offers on the business. People that were interested. Were these, were these emails sent to people who owned pool maintenance service contract businesses or were these just passive investors who wanted, like, who was she sending these emails to? So they, they had a qualification process to where if you want to look at a business, you had to qualify, you had to show them that you had the cash to buy a business. You had to, and there were some, uh, you know, acquisitions firms that were interested in buying the business where they just buy different kinds of businesses and they diversify their, their business by buying different kinds of businesses. I want to say there was three of those that were actually interested in buying the business. And then there was like some serial entrepreneurs. And so she had, she had a list of people she had already qualified. So she knew I'm going to send this out to the people that could actually pull the trigger because I wanted a cash buyer. I, I didn't want to, you know, I was okay with financing, but I said, you know, I would rather go through all the cash buyers first. And then if somebody can come up with the down payment and then can go get the rest in a loan, I'm fine with that too. Got it. And so what, what did you, how did you, what was your reaction when you read the five offers? I was blown away about how quickly, cause Initially, she told me, she's like, hey, this is not a fast process. This is going to take 12 to 18 months minimum. So I don't want you to you know, lose hope. You know, if you're in this thing for like eight months and nothing's really happening, she's like, it's going to take a little bit of time. It's not like selling a house. And so I was like, I already had it in my mind, 18 months. It's going to take 18 to 24 months to sell this thing. And so when she came back and she was like, look, we already have people interested. They want it. So we started setting up meetings to start meeting with everybody. Um, and And Tommy, did she put a price on the business when she sent those emails or does she invite people to? to Yes. So yes. So she put, I believe she put the sale price of the business. Um, actually, no, she didn't. Yes, she did. She put the sales price of the business and she put the revenue, but they had to inquire to get any more information. Like they couldn't just go in and see any financials or anything like that. Uh, they, like I had to approve whoever we gave the financials to like, Hey, yeah, you can send them the financials that way they can look at the business. I know we can't talk about the specific number that you sold for, but, but so she, she had a listing price on the business where she said, this is the price that we're, we yes. want for the company. Yes. Just as similar to like similar. If you were to buy a house, you go look and see the market by, Oh, this house is, you know, $350,000. You, you would know right. going in Okay. That's helpful. So you get these offers and what was, uh, what was their, what were their sort of price points like? Like did they, did they all say we'll pay your asking price? Did they offer less more? What was the, there was a combination, there was a combination, um, of there was people there. I actually got offered one person offered me more than asking price, which I thought was weird. Um, and it was an acquisitions firm. And then there was like, you know, there was offers that were the, the oddly enough, the lowest offer came from a competitor who is like in a bunch of States all over the United States. And they wanted to do an earn out and their offer was actually like so low and so ridiculous that the broker was like, this is embarrassing that they would even send this. I mean, she's like, I'm like, I have to show it to you. And she basically just, I think I took a call with the CEO just to tell him he was ridiculous. Um, but yeah, funny enough, a competitor was the one that wanted to do an earn out and I was just completely uncomfortable with that. But yeah, so the, the, the pricing was all over the place. Like the offers were all over the place. They, you know, were right at one was over one was uh, a little bit under 
And uh, so then the process started to where we got to actually go meet with the people that were giving the offers. And what was that like? So they, and this is where it gets pretty interesting because when they're, they're, they're looking at your business based solely on financials. And that's why it's so important for people to get their financials in order and what they have in their asset column, what they have listed as an asset versus an expense. You know, like I remember I told my CPA at one point, I was like, Hey, I want to list my, uh, I want to list my website in the asset column. And she's like, well, you can't do that. I was like, well, why not? It's an income producing asset. I want to list it in the asset column. And she was like, well, you know, you're going to pay more in taxes if you do that. I was like, I don't care. I'm trying to sell my company. I want to make the value worth more. Um, and so she's like, okay, if that's what you're trying to do, then we'll list it in the asset column. So it's kind of important to understand what you're going to put in your asset column, what you're going to put in your expense column, because when you go sit down with these people who want to buy your business, they're going to pick your your accounting completely apart. I mean, they'll ask you questions. I mean, there was, there was like a, like a $77 car rental fee somewhere in what we gave them. And they were like, well, what's this for? I'm like, yeah, I went out of town. I put the rental car in the business. I'm like, okay. But they, they drill down and they ask you, so why, why do you have this listed as an asset? Why are you listing this as an expense? And they're, they, and they're going through all your accounting first because they want to make sure that you have tight accounting that's giving them ac- accurate information um, so they can, you know, give you a, a, a real purchase price because they're going to tell you, yeah, I'll, I'll offer you your full asking price. But then when they sit down with you, that's where they're going to start going, okay, well, I see this. Well, you did this, this, and this within your books and we don't agree with that. So we're going to lower our asking price to whatever it may be. Um, and then they get into your, your business, like how you run your business. And it was very, it felt very, very personal to hand over. You know, it'd be like, if I'm asking you right now, Hey, can, let me see your, let me see your bank account. You'd be like, uh, yeah, I don't want to show you my bank account, but you're exposed. You know, you're very, you're in a vulnerable position. You're showing them they're going through your books, seeing all the mistakes you've made over the years. And you're like, you're embarrassed about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, what's this? What's this right here? Well, well, I hired someone to do the accounting that didn't really know what they, they were doing. And I thought they did. And they didn't pay. They, they didn't pay the $80,000 worth of payroll taxes. And so then the IRS came back and they fined us. And, you know, so you're like going through like reliving all your mistakes over the years, which <laughs> it's funny to talk to you about now. But at the time, you're just like, man, <clears throat> you know, but I'm only laughing because I'm feeling <laughs> the heat myself. it's it's very vulnerable and so and then like i said they're getting to the operation like who runs stuff who are your key employees you know and i thought this was kind of funny i asked uh i asked my broker i was like hey so when do i tell my employees and she's like the day after you sign the paperwork and and, you know he's walking in the office i was like yeah that's a good idea (laughs) how'd you feel about that some people feel a little bit uh uneasy about not telling their employees until the check clears. Yeah. I, I felt really uneasy because most of my employees had been there for a long time and they worked for me for a long time. And uh, that was the, when I spoke to every single person that was interested in the business, I would echo the fact that, look, I love my employees and I want them well taken care of. That's like the most important part of selling this business for me is to know that when I walk away, you're going to take care of, our employees that have been there for a long time. And funny enough, we actually took less money from a serial entrepreneur because he wrote this letter about how he's going to take care of the employees, how he's going to, you know, see that 
they were well taken care of and that they, he wasn't going to get rid of anybody. And so we took less money because I was like, I don't want, I'm selling the business. I feel like I'm doing them an injustice. And some of them took it really hard once we did tell them that we were selling the business. I mean, really hard. And uh, so it, yeah, took less money to be able to, you know, sell it to the right person. What percentage off did you accept to lower bidder? Like how much lower were they on a percentage basis than the highest bidder? Uh, it, I would say maybe like half a percent. Okay. So, so not, not 20% no. less or it was slightly. No, 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 no. Because they would, they would have been hard to walk away from 20%. That would have been like. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And so you said it was hard for some employees to, to hear, take us through that day. Where, where, where did you do it? Where did you announce the acquisition? Who was most upset? What was making them most upset? So I called each one of them into the office. Not, I, I, I should rephrase this. I didn't tell everybody. I, it wasn't like we came into the conference room and, you know, I sent out emails and stuff. Uh, I took the key employees into, into my office one by one. And I sat them down. The saving grace that I had was over the years I had talked about, well, someday I'm going to, I plan on selling the business. That's kind of what we want to do, you know? So it wasn't like all of a sudden, what do you mean you're selling the business? This is crazy. Like when did this idea come up? Uh, So they already were warmed up to the idea and, and that aspect, but they, I brought them in. I said, Hey, look, I just want to tell you something. Let, let's sit down. Like, I really appreciate everything you've done over the years. And, you know, we're going to go ahead and sell the business. And we have looked through the potential buyers and we're picking the one that we know that's going to take, take care of you guys in the long run. That's, and I even told them we're, we're going to take less money to, to be able to make sure we get the right buyer in there. Who's actually going to, you know, honor the, and, and the, the, whoever buys the company doesn't have to honor your, your agreement with the employees. They can come in and change it and do whatever they want. But he, the, the buyer was like, yeah, I'll honor, you know, like some employees that worked there for so long, they had, they had worked up three or four weeks of worth of vacation time, you know? And so, because they earned it because they worked so hard and so long and said, and I didn't want somebody coming in going, Oh, now that I'm taking over, you only get one week of vacation time now, because that would be a huge morale uh, buster to, to, to do, to, to do that in addition to already selling the business. Got it. Got it. So what was your, um, way of ensuring, or did you ensure that the serial entrepreneur who wrote this letter is assuring you that, that he would take care of your employees? Did, did you actually legally paper any of that assurances or were you just taking that individual on their word? You know, so that was one thing that we discussed is being able to like get him to sign something, but the broker was like, I don't think he would. And it's kind of like, maybe he comes in, he doesn't mesh well with somebody and they're giving him a hard time. You know, it'd be like you buying my house, but when you do, I'm like, yeah, but you can't change the tile in the bathroom. I love that tile. You know, so for the next five years, you got to keep that tile. You'd be like, yeah, I don't, it's my house. I, I paid for it. And so I think it's kind of one of those things where you might be able to get away with it. You might be able to get someone to sign something, but in this case we didn't. And we were basically taking his word. Like I trusted the guy. I, I mean, I I had met with him once we picked him as the buyer, I had met him time and time. Like I was on the phone with him almost every day for 
two or three months before he stepped in, you know, like just going over stuff, him having questions because he had no experience in the industry. So he had questions of how to run the company and what to do. And so we would go to lunches. And so over time I actually got to know the guy and I, I, I trusted him. Uh, and what were the deal terms that you agreed to? You mentioned you didn't want an earn out. Uh, what, what sort of terms did you, did you get all your money the day of closing or did you agree to some sort of terms? Uh, I actually, no, we didn't get all the money day of closing because he ended up, he had, I want to say like, I forget how we did it. So we had to stick around for 30 days. So once we signed, we thought we were going to have to stick around for like six months or a year, but he was like, I'm only going to need you for 30 days. So I'm like, that's perfect. Well, we need to be there for 30 days. So he put down on the day of close, he put down, um, I want to say it was like 70 or 80% cash that we put into our bank account. And then he was going to pay the remainder in 30 days, which we were kind of uneasy about that part, but the saving grace of that is what we did. It was like, okay, so because he didn't, he didn't buy our entity. He started his own entity and, and just took all of our assets, all of our employees, all of our customers, which is smart because he's avoiding any kind of liabilities that we may have as a company. And he's got, he's just taking all the assets and dumping it into his, his shell corporation. And, uh, with it, so the, the deal was at first, I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that with all, all my money up front. I was like, that, that was the deal. And he was, he was concerned about operating capital. He was like, well, you know, I'm kind of stretching myself, buying this all cash. I'm worried about operating capital. So we agreed that we would get all the, we added up all the accounts receivable for the following month, whatever that number was. And we were like, we'll just collect that money. So we'll subtract that amount. We'll collect that amount of money to where you don't collect it. But if at the end of 30 days, if it's all not paid, you have to pay the remaining balance of what you owe. And he agreed to it. And so I was like, okay, I'm willing to do that uh, just because we have control of the accounts receivable for the next 30 days. Got it. Excellent. And, and that was the only holdback, this kind of 30 day holdback. Yes. Right, right, right. It sounds like a great deal. Is there anything that you would you would look back on and, and do differently if you had it to do all over again? Um, you know, if I if I had to go back and do anything differently, it would be implementing getting the right people at the right time. But yeah, like we held off on getting salespeople. We could have grown that company so much more than we had grown it already if we would have got the right people involved sooner and not been involved in the operation for so long and got our, our accounting straight. Like now that I understand like the power of accounting, like how you can forecast, you can, what you can do with the knowledge that's in those books uh, from the very get go, it would have been the first person I would have hired would have been a salesperson. It would have, it would not have been me out there selling. It would have been a salesperson. I would have got some sort of CFO. It, obviously it couldn't have been full-time, but I would have got somebody involved immediately that could take care of the books and understand where we're flying instead of flying blind. And just along the way, getting the right people involved, getting the people that were smarter than me involved in the beginning, because we always would hire people that we had to train for the position and we thought it was easier, but then they, there was no longevity there. So we were like, going through people. But then we, when we got the people that were the right people, they were the ones running with the departments. And we're like, wow, like, you know, they know what they're doing. Going back to people for a second, you're the new owner. How did they choose to deal with the vice president who owned 10% who was really running the company? Did they keep him or her on? How did they structure 
everybody that owned a percentage got bought out. And I think that he wanted to step in and actually run it. And so our general manager was running a lot of it, running the majority of the operations. So, and at that point, the the owner that had 10% was, he wasn't spending 40 hours a week within the business anyway. And, and it could, he could, he could step out of the business and it would still run. So there was no concern there. The other part that the owner did want, the new owner wanted is he wanted consulting for uh, 12 months, which we gave him. We're like, yeah, if you need anything, you know, I mean, I might not come up to the office, but like, if you want to call me and ask me questions and he utilized that a few times and asked me, Hey, here's the situation. Uh, What would you do? And, you know, I gave him like, Hey, here's what I would do if I was you. I don't know if it's, if, if it's the answer you want, but um, this is what, what I would do in your position. And, and is that consulting? Did you have a governor on that and say like, it's up to X number of hours or X number of days or was it sort of unlimited? Did you have any sort of, yeah, so it was, it was limited. It was definitely limited to a few phone calls. It was, you know, where I didn't have to be there in person. So yeah, I think that was an important aspect of it because I was like, well, I don't want to him buy the business. And the next thing I know, I'm like working in the business, helping him, you know, get it to where he wants it to be. So yeah, we put a governor on that to where, it, it couldn't be all that. It was like an everyday thing. It, like I, I want to say this specific verbiage was a few phone calls a month for a few hours. And he never, ever, he never, ever used up, you know, two or three hours a month worth of that time. What did he do to ensure that general manager uh, was going to stay on through the acquisition? What, what sorts of approaches did he take there? So we took all of our key employees and I want to say we had like, if you want to say key employees, I think there were six key employees, six key employees that that place really needed. So we just took, we sat them all down one by one with him. We all had conversations. We warmed the employees up to who he was. He kind of explained where he was coming from. And one thing that he did that I thought was pretty smart, he didn't like step in and like, Hey, I'm the new owner and you're going to listen to me. He was just kind of like, Hey, I don't know this industry. I'm just going to kind of watch what everybody's doing. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to be in your space asking you, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it to kind of get a, a, a grip on how the company is running. And then there's going to be some stuff that I might implement over time. So he didn't come in and just, all right, we're going to do things this way. He just kind of got the feel of everybody. And I think he won their trust over because he did that. He didn't come in as a dictator and uh, have, you know, a huge ego, which I thought was great on his part. And I, and I, I did feel like he was really warm with the employees when, when we sat down with all of them. And, and now with a bit of time and distance, do, do you, is there any part of you that, that regrets the decision to sell or how do you feel about it today? No way. No way. That was such a learning experience for me. That was such a, uh, like so gratifying to know that we started a company with the intent of selling it. And I remember I used to tell people, uh, yeah, Hey, you know, I was working at a bar when I started it, which is ridiculous. And I remember telling, yeah, I'm gonna start this business. And uh, you know, like the, the goal is to sell it at some point. And I talked to that friend after I sold it. He was like, dude, I can't believe that you actually like built the company and you actually sold it the way you said you were going to do it. I was like, I was like, man, it didn't seem like it for a while. Uh, But yeah, I definitely don't regret it. It's, it's very great. It's very gratifying to know that we built something and that legacy is living on beyond us. And I think that when owners 
get frustrated with their business and they don't want to do it anymore, they automatically just want to shut it down. I'm like, man, you've got assets here. You've got things you can sell. Yes, it's going to take a little bit more time than you want. But at the end of the day, it feels good to drive down the street and see one of our trucks drive by and be like, we started that thing, you know? That's awesome. I know people are going to want to reach out, Tommy. So where, you know, what's, where, is there a website you want to point people to or, or do you do LinkedIn connections? Where can people say hi? So, uh, directly they can, they can find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, whether platforms on pretty much Instagram and Facebook are the main ones. And I have a, and it's at Tommy Barrett's is my handle on any of the social media profiles. And then I have a website. Uh, sellable www.selableinc.com is a business that I have that, you know, we help, we help entrepreneurs who want to prep their company for sale. We also help them with sales and getting the right person in as an, as a sales executive to be selling for them to way it kind of gets them out of the business. Um, so any of those taking places, that lesson, taking that lesson that you learned about the importance of salespeople and, and helping, helping people hire and train those salespeople as well. Uh, so at Barrett's and the major social platforms, and we will put those links in the show notes at builtosell.com. Tommy, it's great to have you here. Thanks again. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.